invite you to turn with me now to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 14. If you have a pew Bible, you'll find us on page 923. We're taking a break this week from our fall sermon series, and we'll be focusing uh, on Acts 14, starting in verse 8. Everything we do as a church falls into one of four categories. First, worship, as we celebrate God's greatness, enjoying who he is, enjoying what he's done for us. Second, discipleship, as we seek to take this grace he's given it and work it into the corners of our lives so that we'll follow him with joyful obedience. Third, care, meeting the messiness, the brokenness, the sorrow of life with grace-filled renewal, grace-filled healing. And then fourthly, this great work of missions, as we have so enjoyed God's grace, we seek to extend it to others. Now, when it comes to the work of missions, it's important that we be thoughtful. As we go about local evangelism, local mercy, global evangelism, global mercy, it's important that we're intentional about it. We don't just want to sort of check the box and do it in a way that does nothing more than sort of make ourselves feel better about ourselves. We want to be engaged in a way that will be really helpful to those that we're seeking to help. And that's why we've invited Dr. Brian Fickert to be with us this weekend. Uh, yesterday he led a day-long seminar and then he's preaching for us again this morning. He is the co-author of the best-selling book, When Helping Hurts. And he's thought deeply about how we can best engage with a world that's in need in a way that will really bring a great blessing to others. So we're glad that he's with us this week and the text that he has asked us to focus on is Acts 14, starting in verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Laconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. This is the word of the Lord. It's ready. Brian, welcome again to MPC. Really grateful for your ministry among us this week. Before you preach, let me pray for you. Father, again, we're, we're grateful for Brian and we're grateful for his ministry and just for the work you've done in his heart to bring him 
to this place where he has a word to speak to us this morning. We recognize, Lord, that it's the, the fruit of uh, the gospel's work within his own mm-hmm. heart uh, that, that brings him here today. So we ask for attentive minds, attentive hearts, to be engaged, ready, eager, uh, Lord, hungry to hear your word uh, through him. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 It's a joy to be with all you folks uh, this morning. This is clearly a church that takes worship very seriously. You never have any stray thoughts. Stray thoughts such as, how tall is that guy anyways? What does his wife look like? So let me try to address those stray thoughts straight out. I'm six foot ten. I'm of Dutch descent. The Dutch are the tallest nation in the world. It comes from centuries of craning to look over the tops of dikes, I think. I married a woman who was five foot five, hoping that she would dilute the gene pool. It is not working. I have three children. They're my pride and joy. They are beautiful inside and out, and they're also gargantuan. I bring you greetings from Covenant College, uh, the college of the Presbyterian Church in America. This, this congregation has a long history with Covenant College, and what a great joy to, to be to hear and to see uh, uh, former students, to see board members from this congregation. So we are thankful for your partnership in the gospel. I'm a professor at Covenant College. I'm also the founder and president of something called the Chalmers Center for Economic Development at Covenant College. We are a research and training center that seeks to equip the local church and missionaries to bring economic development to the poor. We want want to see the poor restored to what God has created them to be, people people of a sense of dignity and worth and capacity, who can use their gifts, who can steward their gifts to work and then to be able to, to support themselves with the fruit of that work. We don't want poor people to ever hear of the Chalmers Center. Rather, we want the poor to experience the local church or missionary, as what the Bible says those things are, the body, bride, and very fullness of Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm joined today by Michael Briggs. He's the new executive director of the Chalmers Center. I'm now the president, which nobody knows, nobody knows what that means. It means that I shouldn't talk to anybody on the staff anymore or something like that. And, and, and so uh, we're, I'm thankful for Michael. He's going to be running the Chalmers Center day-to-day, letting me step back a little bit from that frontline work. I uh, had a great time speaking here yesterday all day long, all day long, <laughs> and this is the third time this morning for this sermon, and you, as you can imagine, I'm a bit tired. As I was standing out in the hallway, your pastor came up to me and gave me a good word. He said, Brian, this might be the last time these folks ever hear the gospel. Christ could come again before next Sunday. Preach it like it's their last time. Oh, my word. <laughs> No pressure. (laughs) But may it be so. May it be so. May I preach the gospel like it's the last time I'll ever get to deliver the message. And may you hear it and receive it as though it were the last time as well. These are unique times facing the church of Jesus Christ. About 2.6 billion people, roughly 40% of the earth's population, lives on less than $2 a day. A little over a billion of those people actually live on less than about a dollar and a quarter a day. And coexisting with those massive numbers of poor people are us. We are the richest people ever to walk the face of planet Earth. We have unprecedented wealth and power and technology. 
And so in, in the face of these disparities, I think we, I want to look at the question today, the question of this. What is the church of Jesus Christ supposed to do in the face of massive amounts of poverty? I'm not asking today the question, what should the government do? What should the family do? They all have roles to play. I'm not asking the question today, what should the business community do? I'm asking the question, what should the church of Jesus Christ do as it conf- confronts unprecedented poverty and wealth disparities? This is always an important question, but it's particularly important as we consider the the advancement of the gospel in the 21st century. You see, the center of Christianity has shifted from the West, from, from America and from Western Europe. The center of Christianity has shifted to Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Indeed, the church is growing most rapidly amongst the poorest people on the planet. One observer has noted that the average Christian today is not a business person attending a U.S. megachurch, but rather a poor woman in a squatter community in Sao Paulo, Brazil, or a poor woman in a remote village in Uganda. That's what the average Christian looks like today. And as we think about taking the gospel to unreached regions, we're going to confront the poor as well. The vast majority of the world's unreached people groups live in the 1040 window, and 80% of the poorest people on the planet live in that 1040 window. One observer has said, the poor are the lost, and the lost are the poor. So once again, what is the church of Jesus Christ supposed to do as it encounters profound poverty? Although I don't think this passage is meant to give us a comprehensive answer to this question, I do think that this passage from Acts that we looked at, when interpreted in light of the rest of Scripture, does give us a picture of what it must look like for the church as we go forward in meeting the needs of the poor. The scene in Acts unfolds with Paul and Barnabas entering into Gentile territory, into an unreached region. And as they're going forward to present the gospel into an unreached region, the first thing they encounter there is a man who's been crippled from birth. Now commentators suggest that this man would have necessarily been a beggar. That he would have spent his life with his hand reached out, asking for bread to be placed into his hands. Now what do the first missionaries do when they encounter this poor person? What do they do when they encounter this beggar? Well, notice that they they address his physical needs. They perform an act of healing. They restore him so he can walk for the very first time in his entire life. Now why, as the gospel is being brought forth into an unreached region, why would these first missionaries address physical needs? Isn't the task of the church to simply preach the gospel, to address people's spiritual needs? Why are these missionaries addressing physical needs as the gospel is proclaimed? Doesn't this divert the church from its task? In fact, isn't this what's happened to all the liberal denominations out there? In order to understand what Paul and Barnabas are doing, we have to understand the mission of the church of Jesus Christ. And in order to understand the mission of the church of Jesus Christ, we need to understand the mission of Jesus himself because the church's mission is rooted in Christ's mission. So in order to understand what Paul and Barnabas are doing in Acts, I want to back up and ask a very basic question. What is the mission of Jesus Christ? 
Why did Jesus come to earth? I'd like you to pause and actually ask yourself what your answer is to this question. Why did Jesus come to earth? Most of us are probably saying something like, he came to die on the cross to save me from my sins. That is true. But I'd like to suggest to you that to think that all that Jesus has done is solve your legal problem, and you have a legal problem, and so do I. We've sinned against the holy God. We need forgiveness. We have a legal problem. We need Christ's death and resurrection to pay the penalty for our sin. But if you reduce his work to that, we're missing something. Look at Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, Jesus begins his earthly ministry. And look with me at how Jesus understands the mission that he is on. In Luke chapter 4, starting with verse 18, Jesus goes into a synagogue on the Sabbath. Now what's going on here is the Jews are living under the oppression of the Roman Empire. The Romans are, are, are outside, they're running the show, and the Jews are longing to be released from captivity to the Romans. They're looking for release from that captivity. And as they're longing, you know, the prophets had told them, the prophets had told them that something was going to happen, that a redeemer would come, a king would come. They're longing for that. And in that context, the son of a carpenter stands up. In Luke chapter 4, we read this. A scroll was handed to Jesus from Isaiah chapter 61. And Jesus reads from that chapter, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's the year of jubilee from the book of Leviticus, when captives were set free and debts were canceled. Then Jesus rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, and he sits down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture, this prophecy from Isaiah, is fulfilled in your hearing. What is Jesus doing? What is Jesus saying? Jesus is hearkening back to the prophecies, prophecies of Isaiah that took place 700 years earlier. Now, you've got to get this. Isaiah brings an indictment on God's chosen people for her sins. I was raised in Christian schools from first grade all the way through college. I loved the Bible story time. The good kings and the bad kings. And we would cheer for the good kings and we would boo the bad kings. I loved the stories of Israel. I was taught that Israel was sent into captivity for idolatry. And there certainly is evidence for this, that Israel was sent into captivity for idolatry. But in the book of Isaiah, we see more. We see in the book of Isaiah that God is indicting Israel for her sins, one of which is her failure to care for the poor. Did you know that? And if you didn't, why don't you? Have we been so blind to certain parts of Scripture? So in the, middle of, in, the, in the context of saying to Israel, I'm going to send you into captivity, God promises to send a king. 
A king who will restore Israel, calling her back from, capti- from captivity. But a king who will do so much more than just that. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. Isaiah describes the coming king and the coming kingdom. He says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and of peace, there will be no end. That word peace is profoundly important because in Hebrew the word peace is is the word shalom. It, It means more than just the absence of war. It means something far grander. It means completeness. It means comprehensive happiness. It it means pushing back against all the effects of the fall and restoring the entire creation to what it's supposed to be. It means restoring human beings to what we are created to be. Ultimately, as the scriptures unfold, we learn more and more about this coming kingdom until we see in Revelation chapter 21 that this new kingdom ushers in a new heavens and a new earth in which there will be complete shalom, complete restoration as far as the curse is found. Now what Jesus had the audacity to say in that synagogue in Luke chapter 4 is that he was the king that Isaiah talked about and that he was ushering in that kingdom and that in fact he reigned already, that the kingdom was still coming, but it had also come in him. Indeed, the kingdom of God is the central piece of Jesus Message. Luke chapter 4, verse 43, just a few verses later, Jesus says this, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God because that is why I was sent. When I asked you why did Jesus come to earth, how many of you said to yourselves to declare and to usher in his kingdom? So often we've reduced Jesus to simply a, a, a quiet pietism. It's me and Jesus with my Bible and my journal on a rock looking at a pond with ducks in it. You should go to the pond once in a while to prepare for a lifetime of kingdom service to declare that he is ushering in a kingdom that is bringing healing as far as the curse is found. Now how does Jesus declare his kingdom? He walks around, and as he encounters lepers, as he encounters blind, as he encounters the lame, he puts his hands in his pockets and he says, All power in heaven and earth has been granted unto me. I am ushering in a kingdom that is bringing healing and restoration as far as the curse is found. I could heal your blindness. I could heal your leprosy. I could heal your sin condition, but I'm not going to really bother. Just trust me. Who would have believed that? That's not how Jesus operated He preached his kingdom, and he showed his kingdom. He took his hands out of his pockets, and he touched the blind, he touched the lame, he touched the lepers, and he said, I am that king, this is my kingdom, let me show you. You see, Jesus' miracles were sneak previews. If you're under the age of 30, they were trailers of the coming attraction. You're all very confused, you young people. Why the thing that comes before you call a trailer, I do not understand, but, you know, whatever. 
When Jesus does healing, notice he doesn't just show off. You know, I would just show off. I'd say, look, I got all power in heaven and earth. Watch this. And like I take a tree and I'd uproot it and I have it dance around the moon or something and, and I don't know, fall on somebody's head. <laughs> Maybe this is the last sermon ever. <laughs> Jesus doesn't function that way. If you look at Jesus, what he's always doing is it's, it's, it's acts of restoration. He restores the poor, he restores the lame, he restores the blind closer to complete humanness because he's giving a sneak preview of the coming attractions that when his kingdom comes in its fullness, there will be this kind of complete restoration. Jesus preaches the kingdom and he demonstrates the kingdom. And he sends out his followers to do the same. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus sends out the 12 disciples to preach the kingdom and to heal the sick. Luke chapter 10, he sends out 72 to preach the kingdom and to heal the sick. Folks, this is what Paul and Barnabas were doing in the passage in Acts. They're going out to declare the kingdom in words and in deeds, and so they use deeds of restoration. Restoring the crippled man so he can walk. Restoring him to a greater fullness of humanness. Restoring him as a picture of the coming kingdom. The deeds of restoration are profoundly important for they authenticate the truth of the gospel of the kingdom. But the deeds are not enough. Indeed, Paul and Barnabas use words as well. In fact, if you look at the passage, I think we can actually see four different parties being ministered to by Paul and Barnabas' words. The first person to benefit from the words is the crippled man himself. The passage says that he listened to Paul's preaching, and as a result of hearing Paul's preaching... He came to faith. Indeed, we know from Romans chapter 10 that faith comes through hearing. There's an old saying, preach the gospel, use words if you must. We always must because faith comes through hearing. The second party to whom the words ministered were the people watching the miracle. You see, as they watch the miracle, they don't immediately bow down and worship God Almighty. In fact, they do something different, don't they? People interpret deeds through their own cultural lenses. People interpret deeds through their own worldviews. And that's what we see happening in this passage. The people to whom, the people in this setting were engulfed in paganism. And they believed in a bunch of myths, one of those myths being that the gods had previously come down to them in human form. There's actually a myth in this culture that said the gods had come down at an earlier point in time, and these people had not shown proper hospitality to those gods. And as a result, those gods had wiped out all of their homes and so what's going on in this passage in their minds is that they're getting a second chance. That the gods have come down again. They're getting a second chance to show better hospitality. You'll notice that the priest is particularly concerned about his job security. 
He's running around frantically. They've got to show hospitality to these gods. Now, what do Paul and Barnabas do in response to that? Do they say, well, we don't want to offend anybody in this culture? You know, they might not like our message. They plunge in and they say, no, these miracles were not done by ourselves. These miracles were done by God Almighty who has borne witness to you through his deeds of mercy and compassion through the reign that he has sent to you. They narrate the deeds. In essence, they're trying to replace a pagan worldview with a biblical worldview. The words also minister to Paul and Barnabas Themselves, that may be less obvious to you. You see, we are always prone, we are always prone to taking credit for our good deeds. God does not take that sin lightly. In fact, in, in just a few chapters earlier in Acts chapter 12, there's a very interesting scene. King Herod gets up and he gives a speech, and, and the people in the audience Shout out, this must be a God speaking to us. It's very similar, actually, to what's happening in Lystra. They call Herod a God. And Herod doesn't rebuke them. He likes being called a God. Acts chapter 12, verse 23, we read this immediately. Because Herod did not give praise to God an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Folks, Paul and Barnabas' health, their spiritual health, and, and perhaps even their physical health, was at risk in this moment. They needed to communicate to everybody, including themselves, that this was the work of God and of God alone. And finally, the words ministered to God himself. The Bible teaches that God wants people from every tongue and tribe and nation to use their hearts and their tongues to bring glory to him and to him alone. Well, well what is the application of this to McLean PCA today? Four points of application. The first is this. The church's task is to continue Jesus' mission of declaring the good news of his kingdom in words and in deeds, especially amongst the poor. Indeed, care for the poor. Care for the poor is one of the central tasks of the church. It's not peripheral to the gospel. It is grand central stage for the communication of the gospel. But the second issue is this. As we work amongst the poor, we must do so in ways that are restorative. We must do so in ways that help the poor to be restored to image-bearing. We must work in such ways that help the, restore to un to help the poor to understand that they have inherent dignity and worth and capacity and that they are empowered through the restoration that comes from Jesus Christ to work and to be able to support themselves through that work. We're trying to paint a picture of the coming restoration. But folks, that doesn't happen automatically. Good intentions are not enough. So often our efforts to help the poor actually hurt the poor. It's so interesting to me. 
I have a sneaking suspicion there's just one or two Republicans in the audience today, just one or two, thousand. <laughs> and so often we in the church are so critical of the federal government's welfare programs, we argue that so often that federal welfare programs cripple the poor, but so often the church of Jesus Christ mimics the mistakes of the federal government. The ways that we approach the poor actually cripple them. I have bad news for you. The hardest places in the world to bring restoration to the poor are usually the places where the American church has been a lot. The hardest places in the world to help restore the poor are often the places where the American church has been a lot. Because the kinds of approaches that we use, hurling around resources aimlessly, often cripple the poor instead of helping to restore the poor. We need to use strategies that bring restoration. Number three, we must carefully design our ministries to the poor so that at the end of the day, everybody involved, the poor and those watching and ourselves are drawn into greater and deeper worship of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This means that from top to bottom, our ministries need to narrate where the malaria nets come from, where the medicine comes from, where the microloans come from, if we fail to narrate the deeds, bad things happen. Here's the issue. Most of the funding sources for working amongst the poor around the world are from governments. And as a result, so often as we go forward trying to help the poor using government money, and there's a place for government money, but so often our funding sources prevent us from narrating where the help comes from. And this is deadly for the poor, just as it was for the folks in Lystra. You see, most poor people around the world are engaged or or, or practice animism. It's a worldview that says that there are arbitrary, capricious spirits that run the world. And they interpret deeds through those lenses just as the people in Lystra did. Let me give you an example of what happens when we help the poor who have an animistic worldview without narrating that it is Jesus Christ who provides the assistance. I know of a Christian relief and development agency that was working in a particular country in Latin America. And this Christian Relief and Development Agency took government money and used that government money to help farmers to increase their agricultural production. Yields exploded. But there was no narration of the gospel. You know what happened? These farmers were animists. And they interpreted the increase in agricultural yields as the blessing of their goddess of fertility, Pachamama. And they took their corn, they distilled into alcohol, had the biggest orgy they'd ever had, plunging themselves deeper into worship of Pachamama, just as the people in Lystra did. A second thing sometimes happens. As we bring in technology, as we bring in assistance and don't narrate where it comes from, 
people will sometimes reject animism and embrace the gods of Western civilization, material resources, and technology. Bill Gates becomes their savior. Our ministries must declare from top to bottom what Colossians 1 teaches us, that Jesus Christ and Christ alone is the creator and sustainer and reconciler of all things. It is he who provides the malaria nets, the medicine, the microloans. It is he who restores people to dignity and worth and capacity. It is he and he alone who reconciles people to God. It is he and he alone who is the hope of the poor. And the fourth point. We need to repent of our own worldview. You see, Western civilization is built on a lie. The lie of Western civilization is that if God exists, and we're not sure he does, if he exists, he is over here and his world is over here. He's wound it up like a clock and it runs on its own without his presence or sustaining hand or interventions. If God is irrelevant to his world, then where do you think our wealth comes from? We think our wealth and our power come from ourselves. We think we made it because God wasn't present. And that attitude gives Americans a profound sense of pride and superiority that we have the technology, we have the know-how, we have the resources to save the world. And that pride crushes the poor all over the globe. You see, one of the primary qualities of being materially poor is a sense of inferiority, a sense of shame, a sense of incapacity. And when Americans who are so full of themselves interact with people with a sense of shame, we crush them. Rather than restoring them to dignity and worth and capacity, we grind them further into the ground under a deluge of resources and technology. I would submit to you that Americans, and perhaps even American Christians, are the least prepared people to help the world's poor. We are the least prepared people to help the world's poor because we think it's about material resources and technology that we have created on our own. Folks, the primary power that Paul and Barnabas had was not power and technology. The primary power they had was Jesus Christ working through them, through their humility. The primary thing that we need to prepare to work amongst the poor is humility that comes from the gospel. Folks, we can't get rid of our pride on our own We need King Jesus to fix us. Folks, the goal isn't to turn Bangladesh into America. The goal is to turn Bangladesh and America, which are both broken, into the new Jerusalem. We're not the goal. We ourselves are broken, and we need a healer. You see, in order to help a beggar, you first have to become a beggar. In this light, poverty alleviation isn't so much about putting food in the hands of a beggar as much as it's 
grabbing the hand of a beggar and saying, I found the bread of life. He can feed you and he can feed me. Let us feast on him together. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the bread of life. And we reach out our hands to you like beggars, asking you to heal us. Asking you to heal us of Western civilization. Asking you to heal us of our pride. Asking you to heal us of our faith and our trust in our power. Asking you to heal us of our faith and our trust in technology. Asking you to heal us of our faith and our trust in material resources. May we be found at the foot of the cross with our hands outstretched like beggars. It's in your name alone that we pray. Amen.